0: Hi, my name is Paul Crandall and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment. Whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So. Please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. Merry Christmas. Nothing says Merry Christmas like a pug dressed as a reindeer with a Santa hat, right? I had a family come up to me like, "Oh, wow, we had a pug. It was awesome. We're not having any more. We're done with that. they're they're a they're a dumb dog." And I was like, "Oh, wow. I didn't I didn't know my shirt would trigger so much drama." No, it's a great time man. Christmas is fun. Christmas shopping is Not fun, right? I don't know how much of your Christmas list is, you know, completed and you're done. You don't have to go into the crowds. I'm sure there's some of you that haven't even started your Christmas shopping. You know what? Bad on you, okay? Bad on you because I need to go to Costco. I have a family. There's six of us. We have to go to the store and then you don't do your shopping then you're in my way from my parking... No, I'm just kidding. It's not a pastoral rant time. No, I want want to think about gifts as we close out our series called Apocalyptic Christmas. This is our last Sunday in this series in Revelation chapter 12. I want you to think, kind of go back down memory lane, and I want you to think about your favorite present. Okay, now don't yell it out loud because your wife next to you, maybe she didn't buy it. This is, don't So don't get yourself in trouble, okay? But I want you to think about your favorite Christmas present, a gift that just had lasting impact on you, okay? I'll give you an an example. My daughter, Alexine, my oldest, she bought me a French press, kind of a simple uh, gift for me to enjoy my morning coffee. Well, that one gift led me down this rabbit trail for miles and miles on how to enjoy perfect cup of coffee. So she bought me the French press and I was like, oh, Allie, this is so great. So I started to do some research. And I started to learn, well, how do you use this thing? Well, if you're going to use it, you know, you, you don't need a blade grinder. You need a burr grinder because you need to get a consistent kind of experience and consistent grain of the coffee when you grind it. Okay, so I had to buy... The burr grinder. And then I realized, well, if you're gonna do it right, you need the, the right amount of proportion from water to the coffee grounds. So you need a gram scale. So okay, also I got burr grinder, then I got a gram scale. Well, then if you're gonna do it right, you gotta do it at the right temperature. You can't just do it like boil it, they can't just do that. You can't do 212, you gotta do 205, you gotta get two, so you gotta get an electric kettle. And then if you're gonna do all that, you gotta get good coffee. And if you get good good coffee, you gotta get coffee from different countries, single origin, light roast. You buy a subscription, you get a new country every single month. I just got Ethiopia two days ago, delicious, okay? But then if you're gonna do that and you start doing this coffee subscription, they recommend if you're gonna do a light roast, single origin, that you need to do it in a Chemex. So I had to buy a Chemex. And if you get a Chemex and you really wanna do it right, you gotta do the bloom and then you gotta do pulse pouring. So you don't need just a normal kettle, you need a gooseneck kettle. So then you buy the gooseneck kettle and then you realize this one $20 gift has cost you about $300 you know, at this point. But I will tell you, that one gift of a French press opened the door of debt <laughs> but, and delight in a wonderful experience of a cup of coffee. That's a gift that has kept on giving. Ask my bank account. But it's a gift that just continues to have an impact on me. We've been walking through this series, Apocalyptic Christmas, kind of an odd series. And we've been talking about the spiritual dimension, if you will, of the Christmas, of the manger scene. That we we think of Christmas and we think of baby Jesus, Mary and Joseph, shepherds, wise men, all of us. And we think of that manger scene and we've been trying to look past that, not beyond it as if we don't consider it, but really look beyond it to see the spiritual dimension of what's going on. And we've been walking through chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. Revelation means, or is translated apocalypsis, and so that means to reveal or to uncover. We're trying to reveal or uncover the spiritual dimension of that manger scene. And John sees all these visions that have to do with Christmas in Revelation chapter 12. And we saw that when we kind of peel back the curtain and we look into the spiritual dimension of Christmas, we see that there's a war a war between a baby and a dragon. And this dragon is seeking to devour this child born on Christmas. That child is Messiah. We call him two weeks ago, the snake crusher. He's the one who defeats Satan, who liberates us from our great oppressor, Satan and the devil. He frees us from the curse of sin through his life, death and resurrection. He is the hero of Christmas, not Santa Claus, but the snake crusher. And then last week, we looked at what does that victory look like for us? That's our hero, and our hero is victorious. And what he has done is he's taken the dragon, he's taken the devil, he's taken Satan, and he has thrown him out of the courtroom through his death and resurrection. Because Satan was like a a spiritual prosecutor in the courtroom of heaven, saying that we were guilty of our sin, that God should not love us. And he's been thrown out of the courtroom, because now a new verdict can be pronounced over our life. The snake crusher died on a cross, rose again, His birth, life, death, and resurrection, Christmas to Easter, has changed the courtroom of heaven. That now God can look at you, and even though we're all guilty of sin, He can call us righteous because of what Christ did on Christmas. So it's been fun to walk through these two weeks and just talk about the victory of Jesus, the snake crusher, the hero of Christmas, who threw down our great accuser. But today I want to talk about, I want to get a little more practical. What does that victory look like right now? Like today, Sunday, Sunday? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What does it look like now? What does that victory look like now? Because maybe you're coming in in the Christmas season, you're feeling a little defeated. You've seen all these grand pictures of a warfare and battle and victory and all this language, and you're thinking, okay, Pastor Paul, that's kind of cool. But right now, I'm feeling defeated. Right now, I'm feeling attacked. And I want to talk to you about a gift that God gives us because of Christmas a gift that has a lasting impact, longer than my daughter's gift of a French press that has impacted me for a lifetime so far. I want to talk about the gift that Christmas gives us that impacts us right now, today, and that is the gift of protection. Protection. In fact, that's the big idea for today. If you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. If you're going to take away one idea, I want you to take this idea with you during the Christmas season. Protection is your present Protection is your present. God protects those who are his followers, protects those who believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He protects us against the work of the dragon, against the work of Satan, against the work of the serpent. And the attacks of the dragon are deception and persecution. And this is what God offers to protect us from. Let me show you this in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I want to unpack the vision of Christmas that John is seeing. He's talked about the birth of Jesus and how this baby was was freed from the plot of the dragon. We talked about how that was Herod when he tried to kill the babies of Bethlehem. And we've seen this wonderful vision, kind of this dramatic play out of this apocalyptic war, this cosmic spiritual war. And the dragon has lost, the serpent has lost, but he's still on attack. And he's attacking us And he attacks us through persecution and deception. And God protects us from these things. Or a better way to say it is he protects us through these things. Because what I want to show you today is that God doesn't protect us from persecution and and deception. Meaning we don't experience those things. His protection is against those things, but it's because he protects us through those things. You're going to experience persecution you're going to experience deception, but God can protect you through those things. So let me show you how the dragon being defeated on Christmas and Easter is now after us. He's pursuing us and his two tactics, his main attacks are persecution and deception. Let's look at verse 13. It says, when the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to earth he pursued the woman who had, been given, who had given birth to the male child. So the woman in this vision represents the people of God. We talked about that two weeks ago. And it says Satan has been defeated. And because of his defeat, he's now in pursuit. He's mad. He's enraged. We saw in the beginning of Revelation 12, I think it's verse 5 and then verse 7. Verse 5, his plot to kill the baby was foiled. The male child was caught up or snatched away, is how John describes it in Revelation 12. This is the idea that that Jesus was born, and he was able to flee from the plot of Herod to kill the child, the male children of Bethlehem. He was released from that plot, but we saw even more. Christ was released from the plot of Satan when it came to his temptation, released from the plot of Satan when it came to his crucifixion. He was able to be removed from that attack, at least in being defeated from it. Or defeated by it the dragon could not get the child who grew to be a man he was defeated then there was this spiritual battle that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ something changed in the courtroom of heaven and Satan could no longer accuse and so he was thrown down so you could say he's kind of Owen and two he's lost twice and because he's lost he's enraged Right, think about it. The last time your 11-year-old son beat you at checkers and you kind of threw the game pieces. You're like, I don't have an 11-year-old son. Yeah, I have an 11-year-old son. Okay? When he beats me at a game, I pray for him <laughs> as I throw the game pieces at him. No, I'm just kidding. Right? But you know, when you lose, do you get mad. Like, Let's be honest. You're like, you did so well. And I, no, you don't pray for your enemies and those who persecute you and beating you in monopoly right? They put all the hotels on Park Place and Boardwalk, and all you have is two railroads. And he's like, I know you're like, there's a lot of detail in these things. Yes, you know my pain now. But you know, when you're defeated, you get mad, don't you? You get enraged. Satan has lost, big time, two cosmic battles. And he is furious. And he now pursues the woman. He pursues the people of God. And there's part of that that's scary. And there's part of that that's comforting. It's scary because we know what it's like when we lose, what kind of rage builds up in us. But we also know he's defeated. There's no winning for him. There's no possibility of a fourth quarter comeback. It's not going to happen. The only future for this great foe is failure. So yes, he's after us. And yes, it's fierce. But there's no way he can win. But look at how he attacks. Look at how he comes at the people of God, represented by the woman. Look at verse 14. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. A lot of imagery here. Here's what I think John is unpacking for us, what this vision that he sees is talking about. I think this is talking about the persecution of the church, the persecution of followers of Jesus Christ. He talks about, he uses this imagery of what he's seeing is the woman flees on the wings of angels, or sorry, of eagles. Now, that should be familiar language to you if you've read the Old Testament. Maybe you've journeyed with us on this Walk Through the Bible series. We're closing it off. We're we're ending kind of our, our, our full walkthrough of the Bible. If you remember in the book of Exodus, and you remember in the book of Deuteronomy, how God describes how he delivered the people from their oppressor in Egypt, how he took Israel out of slavery, brought them through the wilderness and into the promised land. This description right here is covered with details from that. One, when God said, when I left you, when I brought you out of Egypt, I was like giving you eagle's wings for you to escape. Just the ease of flight of an eagle. That's what he was representing. I I brought you out with ease. I brought you out quickly. You just took flight. And it says he brought them through the wilderness. And here it speaks of the people of God being in a wilderness. And that's where he protects them. Now think about that just for a moment. When you're thinking of planning your vacation, is wilderness the first thing that comes to your mind as the destination for you to find comfort and ease? No, the the term wilderness or desert means desolate, right? Does not have resources of comfort and ease. Why would wilderness be the language he uses here? Again, I think this is an example of God not keeping us from persecution but keeping us through persecution. Again, we go back to this kind of imagery in the book of Exodus of how God brings his people out from the oppressor and they they journey through the wilderness in the book of Numbers. And right before they get to the promised land in Deuteronomy, Moses speaks about God's provision through the wilderness. And the wilderness was a place where God cared for them. Here it says this place is prepared for the woman. But that's not the destination. The destination is the promised land. God has promised this land to his people. He freed them from slavery, but he's bringing them through the wilderness. And if you remember reading about their wilderness wandering, was it a time where they were free from pain and discomfort? Where they didn't see any opposition? No, they experienced all of those things. They experienced hunger and pain. Uh, inner turmoil, conflict, rebellion, almost civil war at times, attacking enemies from outside their group. What did God do in the wilderness? He provided through it again, there's this idea that God is not freeing this woman from pain and discomfort, but he's keeping her. Another example of this is if you look down at verse. Uh, 13. The last phrase, or sorry, verse 14. The last phrase is it speaks about the duration of this nourishment in the wilderness. He says it's time times and half a time. It's a really weird way to talk about time, right? I had some friends over and we were celebrating uh, Maddox, my youngest son's third birthday, which was yesterday. It was super awesome, right? Great to celebrate him and you know, I was smoking ribs, it was super fun to smoke ribs, and at times you're trying to coordinate, because anytime you smoke meat, it's just like, when is it done? When it's done. There's no timetable, so I'm coordinating with, a, with another person who brought over some different dishes, and we're trying to figure out when it's going to go. Imagine if this person came up to me and said, okay, I need to know when to preheat the oven and do this for the other dish, and Paul, when will it be done? The ribs will be done in time, times, and half a time. she would be like, what are you smoking besides ribs? what else is going on here? What does that mean? Time, times, and half a time, okay? The best we can do is, so time is one unit. Times is probably two, at least two times, and then half a time. So you have one, two, and a half. Three and a half. Three and a half what? I don't know. It's three and a half something. I think the idea that the scriptures are trying to communicate is there is a specific amount of time. God has allotted the perfect time, meaning there is a plan, a duration we don't know. How long is it? I don't know. It's times, times, and half a time. I don't know how to read God's clock, but I know he has a clock. And there is a time. Now, this kind of reference, this kind of phrasing, times, times, and half a time, is used by a prophet about 700 years before John. A prophet by the name Daniel. And Daniel talks about times, times, and half a time. And he talks about a very similar situation where there is somebody who is chasing after the people of God. Now, John describes this times, times, and half a time being a time where God nourishes and protects the woman in the wilderness. But look at how the prophet Daniel describes this time. John describes it as protection and nourishment. Look at how Daniel describes it. This is Daniel chapter 7. It says, he will defy the Most High. So it's talking about this evil ruler that will come in the future to oppress God's people. He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws and they will be placed under his control for time, times, and half a time. Let's continue on. Verse 26. But then the court will pass judgment and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. Next verse. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under the heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever, and the rulers will serve and obey him. Daniel used the same language in Daniel chapter 12. Look at this, Daniel chapter 12, he uses the same reference of time, times, and half a time. The man dressed in linen who was standing above the river raised both his hands towards the heaven and took a solemn oath by the one who lives forever. Verse 8, saying, it will go on for a time, times, and half a time. When the shattering of the holy people has finally come to an end, these things will have happened. Notice the language used. Oppression in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, in Daniel chapter 12, it describes it as a time of shattering of the holy people of God. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it? If all we had was John's description of this vision, John speaks about it. this time, times, and half a time being a time of, of nourishment and of protection. Daniel sees a vision of, God, of this oppressor shattering the people of God. So are these two visions in contradiction? No, I don't think so. I think what it shows us is that we could be persecuted and protected at the same time. And in fact, when we look through church history and we look through the history, even in the New Testament of the early church in the book of Acts, that's what we saw. That's what we see. God's people are protected and persecuted at the same time. Because God's protection isn't from pain. It's not from discomfort. It's not that God is throwing us in a bunker and that's how he protects us. No, God's protection is more like a bulletproof vest than a bunker. We go out there, and he protects the vital organ, right? He protects the heart with the bulletproof vest, but that doesn't mean we're not going to get shot at. That doesn't mean that on this journey through the wilderness to the promised land, where we fully realize the wonderful promises of God in the new heavens and the new earth, on the journey there, we're going to get some scars. We're going to get some wounds, but God will keep us and protect us. And what he puts protection over is not our flesh, but our faith. He keeps our faith all the way to the end, but he doesn't keep us comfortable. He doesn't keep us free from attack. He just keeps that attack from damaging our faith, from moving into unbelief. What he starts, he brings all the way to completion. He says, I'll get you to the finish line. I am the author and perfecter of your faith. He who started a good work in us will bring it to the day of completion. These are the promises in the scriptures. Who could separate us from the love of God? Nothing. But we can't take those promises and say, well, this means life will be easy. Life will be comfortable. No one will ever hurt me. No, 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 friend. That is not the true reality of the Christian walk. Satan cannot kill your soul. But that doesn't mean he won't come after your body. That doesn't mean he's still seeking to hurt you and inflict pain upon you. That doesn't mean life is going to be easy. If you just read through the book of Acts, you see that. God protects us through persecution, not from persecution. And that's the protection we want because what is the most valuable thing? Our faith. Our faith in Jesus Christ that has made us righteous. I don't want to lose that. But everything else, even though it's valuable and it's important, if that fades away, that doesn't affect my eternity. But if he keeps my faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then I'll get to the end and enjoy eternal communion with my Father. That's what I don't want to lose. That's what God has said he'll protect. He won't let the dragon take your faith But that doesn't mean he won't get a pound of flesh on the way to the end. Let's look at another tool that he uses. Verse 15. So he said, he keeps us and protects us against persecution, through persecution. And this next description of what happens, again, a lot of imagery here. But I think what's being described here is deception. And I'll show you why I believe that. Verse 15 says, the dragon tried to drown the woman. So he's really mad. He couldn't get after her. She gets into this protection in the wilderness. She's nourished. She's protected against his work of persecution. So he tries to send out a flood of water. It said, drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth op- helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. That is so cool, right? We try to get artwork that matched that, but we're like, it's a little too graphic, Okay, we don't want to cause nightmares like, what's going on? We got this Godzilla dragon shooting out water to drown the woman. Like, what is being described here? Again, a lot of Exodus imagery here. If you remember what was going on with the people of God, the people of Israel, when they're freed from Egypt, they, they are freed from the Egyptian oppressor. They're going to a place of promise, but they are in jeopardy because of some water. Right? The Red Sea. Their backs are against this giant body of water, water, and they're now vulnerable because the Egyptian army is coming back. They're like, hey, we let these guys go, but we need them. We need these guys, and so we want them back. So they charge forward, and now Israel is in danger of water. They could be pushed into the water by the charging army and drown, and so they're standing there. What's going to happen? And if you know how this works, God comes to the rescue. He parts the Red Sea, brings the people through, and when Pharaoh's army rushes through, which has got to be the dumbest decision. I mean, just think if you're a commander, right? Like, we're going to get these people. Their God can't get us. Have you watched the plagues? And then it's like, their God parted the sea. Let's go between the walls of water. What on earth? He just parted them. What makes you think he's going to keep them? But anyways, he just goes through with it, right? So they all charge through, and God slams those walls of water back together and drowns the Egyptians. Moses sees this scene. I mean, it's an epic battle scene. He sees this, and he sings a song. And you know, the language he uses is so interesting because it picks up on the language that John has. He says that God, by the hand of God, the earth swallowed the Egyptians. is that an interesting language? It's the same thing described here. The dragon comes, pours out this water, this river, to drown the woman. And it says the earth swallowed that up. Again, we're we're supposed to be recalling God's deliverance of the people of Israel. Now, I told you, I think this is the deceptive work of Satan. Why is that? Look down at your Bible or at the screen. Where does this water come from? Verse 15, the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood. a water that flowed from his mouth his mouth but the earth helped by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon gushed out from the ma- that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon there's a theme in the book of revelation of weapons coming from the mouth uh, we see christ has weapons that come from his mouth we see the devil have weapons that come from his mouth what is that describing I think what that's talking about is a way to illustrate with very colorful language words that are weapons. So Christ's words are a pronouncement of judgment. The weapon that comes from his mouth is a verdict. It's a verdict of guilty, condemned. Satan, the words that come from his mouth, the weapon is deception. I think another clue to this is if you look down at your Bible, what is the dragon called? If you look at verse 15, the NLT, which is the translation that we have, so verse 15 says, the dragon tried to drown the woman. Okay, this is unfortunate. Okay, I like the NLT translation. I think it's really good, especially if you're reading through the Bible. But sometimes when you want to slow down and read slow and go carefully, I think they make some miscues. And not that this is bad, but we miss the nuance here. That term right there, then the dragon, that word is actually serpent. In fact, that's exactly how they translated that word in verse 9. But for some reason, they changed the translation to dragon, not serpent. Now, that word can mean dragon, but they just translated it as serpent. And I think that's very, very important. Because if you think of the devil and the many different ways he's described, Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent. When you use the term serpent, it reminds us of the first time we were introduced to the devil. He was a serpent in the garden. And what was his attack in the garden? Deceptive words. He went to Adam and Eve and he told them, you know what? God doesn't really have good for you. You should disobey him. In fact, if you disobey him, God knows you're going to get the advantage on him. You will know good and evil. You'll be able to determine what's right and wrong. If you take from that tree, God knows that you'll be like him. And he doesn't want that from you. God's withholding things from you. These are deceptive words. This is what Satan does. And so I think the reason John uses that term serpent is because he wants us to think, what does this serpent do with his mouth? The same thing he's been doing since the very beginning, which is to deceive the world. Look at how this imagery is used by Paul. Paul uses this when he's talking to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He uses the very same idea of serpent when he refers to the devil, and he talks about his weapons being deception, and he ties them all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Let me show you this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at this, it says, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the Serpent. That's the same Greek word that's used in verse 15 of chapter 12 and in verse uh, 9, I think, of chapter 12. Serpent. That same language. You see the imagery here? We have the garden. We have the woman. We have the serpent using the weapon of his mouth, deception, telling her to do something that she should not do. Look how this continues to develop. Verse 4. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. What's going on here? These are weapons of words. These are false teachings. Even if they preach, again, false teaching, deception, a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. So Paul's describing to the Corinthian church, people are coming in and they're deceiving you. Now later on in the chapter, look at how he ties this to the work of Satan. And I think what he's doing here is he is describing for us a real-life historical example of the vision that happened in Revelation 12 because he sees the work of these false teachers, these deceivers, as being tied directly to the work of Satan, this ancient serpent. Look at verse, I think it's verse 11, 2 Corinthians, yeah, verse 13, I was close. These people are false apostles. These are the people teaching these false words. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Verse 14, but I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What does Paul say there? They're acting like Satan, but then he connects them directly. Look what he says. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds desire. Who are these false teachers taking after? They not only look like Satan, but it says they work for him. They're his servants, now, this is something I think we really should pause and reflect on, especially as first 21st century American Christians. And just in discussions, you know, just with my uh, small group, and if you're not in a small group, by the way, I'd get into a small group. Small groups are awesome. Uh, they're wonderful. Uh, you You should jump in and just... Hear the words of Christ coming from other people. It's really great. But we've been talking about persecution. We've been talking about prosperity. We were talking just even last night, just as we were kind of casually hanging out at a birthday party, right? We started just talking about the Bible. And we were talking about how, you know, at times we we as American Christians kind of kind of envy, and I know this sounds a little weird, but we envy the persecuted church. Because not that we want their pain, but we want their devotion. Because the persecuted church, their faith is so incredibly strong. Because it has to be. Right? It's like they're lifting a heavier weight, so their back is stronger. And there's a sense where we admire that. And so we were talking about, like, well, does the work of Satan look different in those lands than it does ours? And as I was thinking about the discussion, and I was just running through my notes for today, I thought, man, this is where I think the American church is. Like, we, we may not be on attack because of persecution, because we live in a land of religious liberty where we can express our religious convictions. Now, we could debate about what, what's happening in the courts and different religious liberty issues and all those things, and I love to talk to you about those things. I like to follow and track those things, but we have a lot of protection here in America to live out our Christian convictions. And that allows us to be freed from some persecution that's not experienced by other followers of Christ in different countries. But does that mean Satan is not after us? Does that mean Satan is not mad that he's been defeated by Christ and he is pursuing the American church? Oh, he's pursuing us. And I think we would be naive to think that he's not after us just because we're not facing persecution. That maybe only Satan is in the region of churches that are persecuted. No, I think he's here. And I think he's here in this way, in deception. And speaking a gospel that is not his gospel, or that's not Christ's gospel, speaking of a different spirit and a different Christ. I think we see this and we've experienced this. It's just been following what's been happening in the American church just over the last even decade. The amount of false teaching and failure, moral failure from pastoral leaders and Christian influencers It is crazy how many people have fallen, how many pastors are burning out, how many churches aren't surviving, how many false teaching is being promoted. A different gospel, a different Christ, a religion that looks similar to what Jesus set up, but actually is not. Oh, I think Satan is very much involved in attacking the 21st century American church. Maybe not by persecution, but he has another weapon. It may be more effective, and that's the weapon of deception, to teach us something that we should not listen to. Now again, how do we combat that? How do we go against that? Do we plug our ears? Ooh, I don't want to hear the words. No. That's not how we combat deception. It's just not hearing it. Think about Jesus Christ. He's tempted in the wilderness. After his baptism, he's tempted in the wilderness. And Satan himself comes to tempt Jesus. And Satan starts laying out these things. Well, if you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do this. And you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't go, I can't hear you. He didn't do that. It would have been really cool if he did. But he didn't. Right? It would totally make the chosen series totally weird. Not very serious. Right? If that's the posture. What did Jesus do? How do we fight deception? We don't plug our ears. We fill our minds with the word of God. Because it's by the word of God that Jesus Christ was able to defeat those schemes, to not fall into temptation. It wasn't wrong to hear those words. Eve heard the words of Satan. Jesus Christ heard the words of Satan. Not that we entertain them, but we know that they're coming. And when they come, what are we going to do with them? We better have some words in here that we can speak to them. But one of the things that's overwhelmingly true and we've seen as a pattern in the American uh, church for a very long time is people don't know this book. It's more readily available than any other time in human history. This book is more accessible, it's less used than ever before by Christians. No wonder we're being deceived. No wonder false teachers can come in and preach a different gospel, a different Christ, a different spirit. No wonder they could come in because we don't even know what the truth is. Right? We, we don't read this book. We don't digest it. We don't sit with it. We don't talk about it with other peoples. We don't know this. We have a commercial view of Christianity. We have a view that's 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 presented and expressed to us through via entertainment. But those things, even if they're based on scripture, are not scripture. And that's what's hurting us. No wonder we're being deceived. We gotta know this. Book and know it well. That's exactly what our Savior did. He knew the book. Even that one you thought was boring. You know what Jesus quoted three times in the wilderness? Deuteronomy. How many times are you like, oh, I wonder if my daily bread's in Deuteronomy? Probably not, right? Because it fills the time. Well, that's the boring book. That's the one the Savior used to combat the devil. So maybe we need to read the boring parts too and walk through all the parts of Scripture and be as well informed as possible. Because deception is an attack of the devil. And these attacks are on everybody. Last verse of our chapter, look at verse 17. It says, The dragon was angry at the woman, and he declared war against the rest of her children and all those who keep God's commands and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Now, here's what I don't think we should do I don't think we should take this imagery too far and think that the woman and her children are like different groups. I don't think it's the best way to look at it. I think it's a pattern we see in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. The, The prophets will speak of the people of God, or Israel, as the woman of Zion. So they give kind of this singular nature to this kind of collective group. But then the prophets will also speak of Israel as individuals, like a large group. I think that's exactly what's going on here. The woman represents kind of the collective church and the people of God as individuals are her children. But notice who Satan has declared war against. It doesn't say pastors. It doesn't say Christian leaders. It says who? All who keep God's commands and maintain their testimony of Jesus. Who is Satan after? All of us. Every single one of us. Now, again, he's not all powerful and everywhere, so he can't attack every Christian to the same intensity all the time. He cannot do that. He cannot maintain that. He's not that strong. But he is strong, he is vicious, and he is after every single one of us. You're in a war. And that guy is scarier than a heat seeking missile or a virus, chemical warfare. His attacks are more invasive, right? More than kind of hacking into your IP address and finding all your search history. He is in here. We see the deception of Satan being something that happens even in our minds and even in our hearts, right? That's big brother right there. And that big brother is bad. And he is coming after you. And he's deceiving and persecuting. And all of us need to take it very serious but our God can protect us. He can protect us. He's right there to to bring us with the, the wings of eagles away from his attacks, to nourish us as we're persecuted, to fill our hearts with good words as we're being deceived. You know, I think a part of our prayers that are missing is that the God of this universe has promised this gift of protection and it's right there before us, but we have a part to play in this. The very ending of Jesus' prayer that he taught to his disciples says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How many times in your prayer do you pray for protection? Protection from the enemy. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Like, how high is spiritual protection on your Christmas wish list? Because you may get everything on your list. You sent your wish, your Amazon wish list like to your husband. Hey. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering, like in February, you sent it to him, you know, like just in case you're wondering and I want, here it is. If you get them all, if you get every single gift you want, you still could be in a very dangerous place. You still, your spirit could be left wanting and in desperate need. Go back to the temptation of Jesus Christ when you think about what Satan can offer us. Satan went to the Son of God and said, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you worship me. What is he saying there? You think St. Nicholas has a big bag of toys? I can give you the world if you bow to me. I think sometimes we confuse prosperity with blessing, comfort with God's favor, and those are not the same thing. They're not even close. Satan can give you a big old bag of gifts And that could be your greatest curse. He can bless you, and it actually be a curse. He can give you a lot of things. You can get everything on your list. But the number one thing you need at the top is protection from his deception and persecution. And that is what God offers you. Ask me, and I'll give you wings like an eagle. I will bring you into spiritual nourishment. I will fill your mind with words that keep you from his deceptive plot. Are you asking for that on Christmas? God, protect me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. I want to challenge you this Christmas season to put protection at the top of your list. To put protection at the top of your list. That's your greatest present. That's his greatest gift to you. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, hear me. I know life is hard sometimes. I know walking this journey that Jesus calls us on leaves us with scars and leaves us with wounds. And I wish I could tell you that that was not true. But it is true. And loss is painful. Maybe the Christmas season just brings that up. You stare at a tree and you realize there's gifts that should be there for that one I lost. Or there's an estrangement in my relationship. And so all the gifts on the tree mean nothing because the right people aren't around the fire, right? That strain that you have on your life. I wish I could tell you that God will eliminate all of that pain and all that suffering and all of those things. I can't. But I can make you this guarantee. He'll finish your faith, man. You'll get to the end. You'll get to the finish line. I don't know how many laps. I don't know how hard it is. I don't know how deep the wounds are going to be. But you will make it all the way to the end. He's promised that. So lean on him and ask and beg for his protection to bring you from start to finish. Because he will answer that prayer. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. He'll answer that. And that's what I want for you this Christmas season. Maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Friend... I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Whether you're watching online or you're here in this room, I have to tell you, there's one who's coming after you. He's deceitful. He's a liar. He's been deceiving from the beginning, and he's not just a deceiver. The Bible calls him a murderer. He wants your life. He wants you to experience death, full separation from God, forever. And I pray that this Christmas season, you will see that God wants to protect you. And he's done so. He's protected you from his accusations. He can't call you guilty anymore. You can be righteous in the sight of God through his death and resurrection. This Christmas season, get yourself a gift that will last forever. Because you know that Nespresso machine is going to break. And let's be honest, it's freeze-dried coffee, so it's not good anyways. You need a gift that will never perish and run out of batteries. That's eternal life. Take that this Christmas season. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, you are so, so good to us, so benevolent to us. Lord, we love you. Jesus Christ, we thank you for your birth, life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for Christmas and Easter. You did the whole work, the complete work. You've freed us. You are our heroes. You are the snake crusher. We've thrown Satan out of the courtroom. Man, I love Christmas so much more than a manger scene. It's a battle won by a great hero. and We are the victors, not because of our efforts and our battle, but because we're on the right side of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us see that we can be protected from the schemes of the devil, protected against them, We're going to have to walk through persecution. We're going to have to walk through deception. But it's the word of God and the preserving character of the Spirit's work that will keep us all the way to the end. May we ask for that. Father, would you not be honored if we asked, give me protection, lead us not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. May that be our prayer and our guide, the North Star to our Christmas experience. May it be the protection of God and his benevolence to keep us all the way through. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.